Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'm so excited because Courageous Conversations is back. We weren't able to have it last year because of COVID, but this year it is back with a vengeance. We are so excited for the seven amazing topics we have, Christianity and white supremacy, rediscovering early African Christianity, black religions and the next generation, slavery in the Bible, politics in the pulpit, truth and trauma, patriarchy in the church. We are squeezing a lot of courageous conversations this year in Washington, D.C., September 3rd and 4th at National Community Church. Listen, you don't want to miss it. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Now, this is a hybrid conference. We have 250 in-person tickets available, and they are on the way to selling out. Um, So the next option would be the virtual pass. All of that is available at CourageousCombos.org. I'm so excited about it. We have amazing panelists. We have Dr. Christina Edmondson, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Esau McCauley, Dr. Eric Mason, Dr. Lisa Bowens, Dr. Otis Moss, Dr. Marvin McMickle, Dr. Vince Bantu, Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, Dr. Cheryl Sanders. It's going to be amazing. I would not miss it, whether in person or virtually. So get your tickets today at CourageousConvos.org. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Hello, everyone. This is Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. I am usually hosting and interviewing, but today it's a little different. We are going to have a lecture by my friend and brother, Dr. Esau McCauley, on navigating problematic passages. And I think that this conversation will bless you. Remember, this conversation is brought to you by generous supporters like you. We are so grateful for the many people who give and sow to this ministry. We are grateful for you, and we could not do this work without you. If you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you could do so at Jew3project.org. Now, without further ado, we're going to get into this episode and this lecture by none other than Dr. Esau McCauley. I hope you enjoy it. God bless. Good evening, afternoon, morning, Jew3 program. Lisa's asked me to speak to you all about dealing with difficult passages in the Bible. And I thought that rather than simply just jump in and start talking about a difficult passage and then working through it, I want to take a step back and say, well, why do we run into difficult passages in the Bible more broadly? What is it about the Bible that makes it difficult to interpret? And the first thing is, like, we have to think about, well, what is the Bible itself? Well, the Bible isn't simply one book with a single author that you can begin in chapter one and work your way through all the way to the end. The Bible is actually 66 books written by a multitude of authors over a period of thousands of years. And those authors had radically different socioeconomic um, standing. They had different They had different um, places in society. They had um, different problems. They were going through different things in history. And so when you say I'm running into a difficulty in understanding a passage from the Bible or understanding what's going on, um, in the Bible as a whole, part of, it, part of it is the difficulty of making sense 
of this book that has these different authors. But for the Christian or the person of faith, although there is there are multiple authors of these um, letters, books, narratives, and poems, we also believe that this text is inspired. And so that alongside the human authors who composed these texts, there was the superintendents of the Holy Spirit. And so that we do believe that there is an overarching story or account of God that emerges as we read these texts as a result of his providence. And that's not always easy to discern, and that's where you run into the sticky issue of biblical interpretation. The other thing that um, I want to say is that one of the things that makes the Bible tricky is that it's a part of a canon. And once again, this may seem straightforward, but it's at least important to put out um, at the beginning. Once you put a letter or a story or a poem next to another story, letter, or poem that changes its meaning. Not in the sense that it becomes something different, it just enters into a conversation. So you just imagine if you and two of your friends are talking, you may talk one way, and then you bring that third person into the conversation, that changes the whole dynamic. And so what you have then is not simply books that are, interpret that are um, potentially tricky on their own, it's about what happens when you put them in the conversation with one another. So, for example, what does it mean that we start the New Testament with the book of Matthew and the Old Testament ends with Malachi? That creates a certain kind of conversation that means that you hear Malachi differently because you know it's followed by what occurs in the New Testament. And so part of making sense of the Bible is understanding that it is 66 books written over a long period of time with different authors and different issues that we believe ultimately was under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit in some form. And so then you say, well then, okay, then I understand all of that, but I still have problems understanding what it means. Now we gotta get to um, another important issue or something we need to think about. Well, like, well, what kind of problem with the Bible could we have, right? One of them could be a problem that I am misunderstanding the genre and I'm applying something in a way that it was never meant to be applied. So let me give you an example. Wisdom literature, things like Proverbs or things, are things that are generally true about how the world works. So the proverb may say, if you get up early in the morning, you work hard, you'll succeed. Now, that's generally true, right? It doesn't mean that every single time you do those things, you're guaranteed a result. And so if you have a passage like says, if you train a child in the way of the Lord, when they grow up, they remain you know, faithful. And you got to say, I did that. I did exactly what this proverb said. And I didn't get the result that I wanted. Well, that's a, that's a genre problem, right? The other one, another example of that is something like the Psalms. The Psalms are ultimately songs or prayers to God. And when you're singing or you're praying or you're talking to God, part of the, the, the point of it is you can be honest about what's going on in your life. And so if you see a psalm that says, you know, I want to smash all of my enemies and toss them off the bridge, it doesn't mean that you should actually go out and find your enemies, smash them and toss them across the bridge. This is what the psalmist is saying to God about his lived experience. What matters so much in that context is not so much what the psalm says, but how God answers. And so you have all of these passages in the Psalms about vengeance upon one's enemies. But for the Christian, we understand how does God answer those prayers? He answers those prayers by sending his son to die for the sins of the world. So that ultimately, the, the vengeance of the New Testament that sometimes emerges in the Psalter is answered by God's own love. And so sometimes you have the problem of I am taking a, a genre and I'm, missing, I'm misapplying it. Another 
pro common problem is you take something that's related to Israel and then you apply it to you or America or whatever. So you have something like, um, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will heal the land. Well, that was because God was making this statement about the covenant that he had made with Israel. And the idea in the old covenant was that if Israel was obedient to God, God would bless them. And if, they, if Israel was disobedient to God, then they would be punished. And so in the Old Testament, if the people of Israel humbled themselves and pray, God promised them crops, food, all of these things. Now, does that same promise hold true in the New Testament? No. What do you get when you're a Christian? You get Jesus. That is what you get in the New Covenant. And so you can't take this, if we humble ourselves and pray, and then directly apply it to the United States, or even have the idea that if we simply do these things, God is going to bless us. That's a similar kind of idea that was much more prominent in the Old Covenant than it is common in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, the blessing that is promised to the Christian is the spirit and the transformation of life. And even someone like Peter gets confused about this because Peter goes, you know, God, Jesus is walking and he says, you know, um, whoever, whoever, um, who wants to follow me, let's take up his cross, and he who saves his life will lose it, and all of these things. And Peter hears about this, and Peter goes, well, hold on. We left all of this stuff to follow you. Why aren't we going to get these blessings? Peter's still thinking in the old covenant context, and Jesus is explaining to Peter that this is not how things are going to go here. And so another kind of interpretive problem is we, we, we are applying old covenant ideas to a new covenant context. So let's say that the problem isn't one of genre, that I'm not, my genre isn't messed up, but that, um, well, actually, can I give one more? I'll give one more history one. Um, here's another genre mistake that people often make. They will take something that is descriptive and they'll make it prescriptive. And so you see um, throughout the Old Testament, for example, um, you see all of the multiple wives of the patriarchs in, in something like the book of Genesis. And we go, oh, well, then the Bible has Abraham having multiple wives. Abraham was a man of the God's own heart or whatever. David had multiple wives. Therefore, we should be able to do what we want. Here's the problem. In every single case, when you look at it, look at every single time there are multiple wives in the Old Testament. In almost every single case, this goes poorly. It is not the case that these women are sitting around going, this is amazing, I love sharing my husband. And the husband is going, this is amazing, everybody gets along well. Actually, what you see is, in every case, there's, there's usually competition, division, and suffering. And so what you should learn from reading those historical narratives is God was gracious to people despite their sin, not their sin is something that must be justified. And for that reason, you can say, I don't need to find a way to justify Abraham selling his wife off so they can get into Egypt. You can say that was utterly wicked, but nonetheless, God was merciful to him. And so once again, we have to be careful that we're not looking at a descriptive narrative of what occurred and take from that, this is the way that we should behave. Now let's say then that you don't have a, a genre problem, that you actually have an interpretation problem. Well, then you gotta ask yourself the following things. What have I actually done to understand this passage? Most of the time we will hear something and we'll read it in the Bible and it will bother us and then we'll kind of move on, we'll forget about it. And then a year later, we come back to that same passage, we read it, and then we, it bothers us. And then we kind of turn on the internet, and we see a meme about it, and that meme talks about the same problem that you have. You go, yeah, this part of the Bible doesn't make sense. What I would say to people is there are scholars who devote their lives to 
understanding the context, the history, the language, and the world into which the Old and New Testament was written. And they've often written about these things. And so if you have a problem, is it simply, I came across something I didn't understand, I looked at a paragraph in my study Bible and it didn't help me, and therefore I thought there was no answer, or have you actually studied the problem? There are 2,000 years of Christian reflection on these texts. How much of it have you read? And too often I hear people, and, and I see it all of the time, where like they have these radio interviews and like these kind of radio DJs think they have, oh, here's this problem with the Bible that I've never really considered, and they think they've, they've undone Christianity as if nobody's ever considered the problem of evil or no one's ever figured about suffering. So what I would encourage you to do is to say, I'm going to actually, if I'm a Christian and I'm going to wrestle with something that really bothers me, I'm going to take the time to read the best minds throughout the church history about this topic and see if on the other side of that, I come to some better understanding. Now, let's say that the issue then, so, like, so what I'm saying is there's a couple of things. Have I studied it or have I simply memed it? Have I actually opened up a biblical commentary and read what two or three scholars have said? Have I looked throughout the history of the church and figured out how they dealt with the issue? Have I read whole books devoted to the topic? Or did I just get, my, get in my feelings and then toss the Bible aside? Now, sometimes the problem isn't a, a part of the interpretation of the passage. Did you understand clearly, clearly what the passage says? And that's what bothers you. And that's actually good news because that means you're doing theology. And, and this is what I mean. As we read through the, the entirety of the biblical story and we spend time as Christians, we, we eventually begin to get some kind of at least vague understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and what the church should be doing. And then once we get that, we, we tend to order passages in keeping with what, what our theology is. And when we run across something that, that seems to violate this understanding of God that we developed, then what we're saying is this passage is in conflict with my theology, which means you're doing systematic theology, which is actually good. Now, when you, when you run across a theological problem, these are the kinds of things that I would ask myself. Is this the kind of problem that God actually wants me to solve? So one prime example here is something like the conquest narratives, right? The Christian reads the stories of people coming in, the, 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 the slaughter of the Canaanites. And the question is, is there an answer to that question that gets rid of this deep sense of unease that I feel with the biblical text? I don't think there is. I think that part of, or even you say something like the sacrifice of Isaac, where you come to this, this story and God's about to like kill Abraham's about to kill Isaac, and then he stopped at the last minute. Is there like a, a answer to that question that's going to make me feel good? Well, no, I don't think that there is, in the sense that you can say, I may understand this text enough to be able to continue to function as a Christian, but it does mean that this question is answered to my satisfaction. And sometimes what it means to be a Christian is to live in that tension and to, and to give God and yourself time to wrestle with these ideas and make sense of them. You may get to the point of saying, I may never understand this passage, but that doesn't mean that God hasn't shown me enough information to trust him. And this is where like the last part of what I want to say um, as it relates to understanding passages, and then I'll give you a concrete example. Um, sometimes um, the healing, sometimes the, the important part then is, do I understand enough about God 
to continue to trust him. This is what I mean when I talk about can- canonical theology. There's two kinds of ways I talk. I-, I like to talk about this. One is like the Lord of the Rings theology. That means the one verse to rule them all, right? I have this one verse, and this is the verse that defines what it means for me to be a Christian. And because I don't understand this verse or understand this passage, I can't function anymore. That's possible, but I feel like that's kind of, in some ways, a myopic interpretation because we're not understanding our limitations as human beings. Instead, I like to ask myself, is there enough evidence in my own life, in the life of the church, and in the scriptures themselves for me to continue to trust God? And even when I'm in the most difficult uh, passages or I'm struggling to make sense of something, it is rare that that, that sense of dis-ease is greater than the confidence that I have that the tomb was empty on the third day. And so the important part then is when you're running across a, a difficult passage in the Bible is to keep the broader story in mind. And sometimes you're in this place where you say, you know what, for right now, or maybe even for the rest of my life, I have to suspend judgment on this. And God, in, in his own providence, will allow us to function as Christians this way. So if you think of our theology and the Bible, 66 books across time and across space, with all of these, all of these differences, these, this is a puzzle that we're putting together. And since we're all theologically limited and flawed, it's rare that all of the puzzle pieces fit. There's always two or three that are kind of off to the side, and you go, ooh, I don't know what to make sense of this passage, right? So you might say, I'm a strong Calvinist. But, oh, man, these verses here really seems like God's telling the people they need to choose what they're going to do. Or you can say, I'm a strong Arminian. But, man, it seems here and here, God seems to really be talking about his sovereignty. Or you may say, I am a strong Baptist, and I, I, breathe, I believe in a free church polity. But, man, these parts right here really give me pause. And so all of us have to understand that, like, no one's, construction of the data accounts for every single verse in a way that's completely emotionally satisfying. And I say this as someone who is pretty confident in the views that he holds, but I don't have it all together, and I'm always willing to understand that I might be wrong and reinterpret things in light of that. And of course, sometimes you get to the place where there are too many pieces of the puzzle that are not on the board. And when that comes, when that begins to happen, you need to rearrange, you know, then your theology is actually whack. The problem could be that you are in, you have real theological error and that you constructed an account of God that actually doesn't do justice to the scriptures. So let me give you at least one concrete example of um, a biblical difficulty that I think could at least partially be resolved as it relates to thinking canonically. This is the, the perennial question of um, what do you do about women in ministry? I'm not going to solve this. I'm going to give you five minutes about it, but at least I can show you a little bit about my method and, and how this might help you. So the, one of the key passages, and we're not even going to talk about all of the passages. We'll just talk about one of them and how the canon might help us. One of the passages that often is cited is 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, where Paul says he does not allow a woman to speak, that she must remain silent. And so you have your Lord of the Rings theology. Here it is, it's clear as day. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35, Paul says he wants women to be silent in church. And sure, I mean, that's fair. Paul does say that. But then you got to ask yourself, well, what happens if I read the entirety of even the letter of 1 Corinthians? Rather than just the whole can, let's talk about this letter. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have this controversy that breaks out about women praying or prophesying with their heads uncovered. Now, we don't even need to get into um, the meaning of what Paul is talking about with their heads covered or uncovered, 
But the idea is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the question isn't whether or not women are going to pray or prophesy. It's what they're going to wear while they do it. There's also a question of what men are going to wear while they do it. But the point is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is articulating the means by which, or the proper means by which women can speak and prophesy in the church. That means that unless Paul has lost his mind, when he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, he must have some particular circumstance in mind. So then you say, okay, then what kind of circumstance could account for what you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's talking about um, the the weighing of prophecies in the church and having multiple people prophesying and they should take turns so that there is order and understanding. There's been a lot of ways of accounting for this, and but one of the one of the things they could say is that one of the controversies could have arisen as a male stands up and prophesies in the church and then his wife stands up and is critiquing the prophecy. She's a part of analyzing the prophecy. And you can see how that might cause some controversy in the home. So Paul says, if you have a question about his prophecy, you should remain silent, ask him at home so you don't put him on front street. Another interpretation of this is that um, it could be that it wasn't actually her husband who she was critiquing, but it was another husband. And you can imagine, once again, the drama that could go out in church if one woman is standing up and critiquing the man who's preaching, and then it becomes like, well, what, it becomes kind of an interpersonal family problem between this family who's critiquing them versus the other family. That's option two. The third way of understanding this is that if you look at how prophecies work in the Greco-Roman world, um, something like the Delphi oracles, the way that it worked was you go to an oracle and you would ask, the, and, this, and women would go to the oracle sometimes, and you ask this question. Well, like, am I going to have a kid? And then they would say, children will be a part of your life. And then part of the ways in which you can make sure you got your money's worth in, when you went to the oracles is to ask a bunch of questions to continue to kind of trap the prophesy, the prophecy in. Anyone who's ever been to one of these kind of, um, even these modern kind of like uh, Diane Warwick, I don't know if she still is walking the earth. Like what you try to do is they try to be vague and you try to get specific. When am I going to get my check? Is it going to be on Tuesday? And so that kind of um, repeated questioning to narrow down the prophecy was what some of the women might have been bringing from outside of the church into the church. And so Paul is seeing this incessant prophesying was happening in Corinth. And Paul may say, OK, you need to stop doing that. And if you have a question about the prophecy, once again, ask your husband at home. Now, those are three different ways in which you can account for why Paul might have said in that context with that scenario of judging prophecies to be silent while at the same time saying that women could prophesy and preach in chapter 11. That doesn't mean we're not taking the Bible seriously as God's word to us for our good. It's actually engaging in a, a reading of the wider context in which it occurs. Now, Another thing to add to that, because we will sometimes say, well, then prophesying and praying in chapter 11 isn't the same thing as preaching and teaching. Well, then you got to ask yourself, what does Paul actually say about how prophecy and how prophets work in his communities? He says in like uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. All right, so if you have women who are prophesying consistently, it could be that like that means they're engaging in, in a significant ministry. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses, uh, verse 31, that, um, that the purpose of prophesying or hearing prophecy is so that people might learn. And so if women were prophesying in the first century, according to Paul, that was the means by which people in the congregation can learn. And so 
when you take a step back and say, well, then what do we see as the actual phenomenon in Pauline churches? It seems to be clear that even though you have something like 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 14, 34, and 35, you have examples of women who are prophesying or preaching or teaching in a way that leads to the edification and the building of, of the church. And in a sense that the people who engage, who are prophets were alongside the apostles playing foundational roles in the establishment of early Christian churches. Now, if we zoom back out a little bit further, we will say that, look, Acts 21 verse 9, you have Philip, you have, you have the, I think it's Philip's four daughters who were prophet, who prophesied. You have at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, and you have um, the people who are gathered in the upper room, women and men, who then go out into the streets and they begin to do ministry. Now, when they begin to do ministry in the upper room, and they ask the question, what does this mean? What does Peter do? Peter actually quotes Joel, and he says, in Joel it says, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, your sons and who your daughters shall prophesy. So as these men and women at the foundation of the church, the first sermon that leads to the miraculous expansion of the church, you have men and women out there declaring the glories of God, and they ask Peter, what does it mean? And Peter says, it means that God is beginning his, his process of fulfilling this prophecy. So the ministry of the women in Acts was directly related to what the way Peter read the Old Testament. If we had time, we could talk about Junia, who's called well-known among the apostles. You could have people like Aquila and Priscilla, um, a, a husband and wife team that also did ministry in the early church. We could talk about um, Phoebe, with whom Paul gave the letter to the church of Rome. The, the, the letter that we know is the book of Romans was written in Corinth. He gives it to a deacon named Phoebe. She takes that letter from Corinth to Rome and delivers it to the congregation. And so it, it, it stands to reason that um, if there was a question about how to interpret those passages, Phoebe would have possibly been the first person who could clarify Paul's meaning. And anyone who's actually read Romans might be willing to say that there's probably parts of that where they said, does anyone know what Paul is talking about here? So when I talk about then, when you look at these things as the canon emerges, and you say, let's look at the phenomenon of women in the New Testament, even in the communities that were shaped by Paul, you can see how that can help us understand how to understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34, 35. The other option then is to take that passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 34, and 35, and use that as the filter through which you explain away all of that data. And part of what it means, this is what I'll talk about canonical theology. Part of what it means is to put these passages in conversation and say what best combination or interpretation of all of these passages accounts for all of the data. So is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, Paul giving a rule that then um, we have to explain all of these other passages as somehow falling within that, even though there's significant tension, women have to be silent. Or is there a particular scenario that Paul is addressing here that then allows us to keep the data that we have? Now, I could be wrong about a passage here and a passage there, and I could be wrong about 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. And if I read and I come across something that gives a better account of all of that data, then I have to be, be willing to revise my stance. But part of what I did is I said, well, let me look and see, and this is what you've heard in this, in this time. What are the different ways in which this thing is re reconstructed? What are some historical scenarios that allows me to interpret the data? 
How does this fit with my understanding of the wider context in the particular letter in which it was written? First Corinthians chapter 11, first Corinthians, and then we went from 11 to 14. Then I say, well, how does this fit within the wider understanding of the New Testament? And if we had time, we go into the Old Testament. So that doesn't mean that every single answer, every single problem that we have in the Bible is going to be answered if we kind of go through these steps. But I do think it will significantly reduce our confusion and gives us enough evidence to continue forward. The last thing I'll say is that for me as a Christian, yes, there are parts of the Bible that puzzled me, and there are parts of the Bible that remain kind of um, things that I've yet, not yet fully come to grips with. But for me, the, the real struggle for being a Christian is not the things that I don't understand about the Bible, it's the things that I do. And so I think that the Bible is clear enough about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to love your neighbor, to love God, to serve him, the holiness of life that is manifested through the power of the Spirit. And when you feel overwhelmed by the things in the Bible that are difficult, I want to encourage you to think about the things in the Bible that you understand. Thank you, Jude 3. I'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jude3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jude3Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.